Good morning. Today's Bible reading is Genesis chapter thirty-two, verse twenty-two to thirty-two. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maid servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, "Let me go, for it is daybreak." But Jacob replied, "I will not let you go unless you bless me." The man asked him, "What is your name?" Jacob. He answered. Then the man said, "Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with man and have overcome." Jacob said, "Please tell me your name." But he replied, "Why do you ask my name?" Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, "It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared." The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched. Near the tendon, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alina. Let's、uh, settle our hearts again as we come to God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, our our sustainer, our creator, our redeemer, our friend. Thank you for your word to us this day. May you speak into our lives, both to teach and rebuke, to train in righteousness, and to comfort those who grieve. Help us, Lord, to know you better and to love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jacob sneaks into the presence of his father, dressed in the garments of deceit and disguised as his brother Esau, as we saw last week, the conversation that follows is full of lies and deception. Lies and deception. I am Esau. <coughs> I am Esau, your firstborn," says Jacob to his father Isaac. "I have done as you told me." Please sit up and eat some of my game, so that you may give me your blessing. How did you find it so quickly, my son? Asked Isaac. The, the Lord your God gave me success, he replied. What a liar! What a deceiver! Last week, I likened Jacob to a mafia boss for his ruthless, scheming ways, for his willingness to stop at nothing in his ambition to get what he wanted. 
But now, 20 years on, his world is about to come crashing down because he just can't hold it together any longer. Jacob is tired of running. And that's another thing about people who build their lives on deceit. They often run away from the truth when it confronts them. They try to fix their problems by either denying that they have problems or avoiding them. So, for example, earlier in the book of Genesis, uh, between that occasion that we looked at last week and our passage today, we we find uh, Jacob running away from his brother Esau, who's determined to kill him the moment that he gets the chance. That's back in chapter 27. We see him running away from his responsibilities as a husband in, in chapter 29. He, he finds a, a woman that he loves, Rachel, but he's deceived into marrying Leah. But then he marries Rachel as well and has children by them. And also he has children by their maids, Zilpah and Bilhah. So complicated family again for Jacob. Running away from his father-in-law Laban. Uh, that is happening just before our passage today in chapter 31. In a sense, he's running away from himself and the troubles in his life. But there's one person in Jacob's life that he can't run away from. And you know who that is. It's the Lord. Can't run away from God. In our passage today, God is going to bring Jacob to his knees. Actually, the Lord has been very, very gracious to Jacob. But after 20 years of running, this man has to face up to reality. His past is catching up with him. Jacob has built his life on the shifting sands of self-reliance, but now all that is about to change. The thing is, you see, Jacob has finally run out of options. Outwardly, it's true, he has prospered in ways that we would call successful. He's uh, managed to uh, extend his flocks and grow his family. He has wealth and possessions, and yet still he's on the run. Like so many frauds, he has no peace of soul, no place to call home. If only he could make a fresh start in life, but how? All in all, Jacob's life at the moment seems pretty miserable. Although he is surrounded by these many blessings, about the only thing he has going for him is the promise of God. And even that seems to be on shaky ground because of his unfinished business with his brother Esau. It's like he has these two realities to deal with. One is a future promised by God, which is full of hope, but the other is a present that is threatened by his fear of Esau. How do you bring these two realities together? So that's where I want to start today. I want to start in our passage with Jacob's midlife crisis, or what I'm calling the crisis at Jabbok Creek. We read this, that night... Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And then notice, so Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone. This is important to notice. This happens before the mysterious man comes to wrestle with him. Jacob is left alone to wrestle with his fears, and he has plenty of fears to wrestle with. On the one hand, God has told Jacob to go back to the land of his father, to go back to Canaan, 
But he's thinking, how can I uh, go back to Canaan when Esau is there waiting to kill me? This is no easy journey for Jacob to make. A man of his reputation, his past is catching up with him. He's had to leave his home where he'd spent many years with Laban. But how can he go back home to Canaan when his brother Esau is there and he doesn't know what will happen? His heart is filled with these anxious fears. What will Esau do? Will he attack him? Will he try to kill him? Will he even try to kill his family as well? So this is the crisis that Jacob is having on the banks of the Jabbok Creek. If you've ever experienced crisis in your own life, then you'll know how scary it can be. Your situation may not be Jacob's, but what about, I wonder if anyone here today has had to face financial crisis to the point that you can't pay your own bills. That's a very scary prospect. Where's God in the midst of a business breakdown? Or what about hearing bad news from the doctor? Suddenly you realise that your life may be cut short. How do you respond in faith to the possibility that death is closer than you'd prepared for? Or maybe there's problems in the marriage or, I don't know, maybe you've failed an important exam and suddenly a door closes. What now will your future be? We all face crises in life, don't we? And they can come at the most unexpected of times, just as we've heard with Dit's situation. How terrible. How terrible. And actually the minister that I was speaking to, he was delayed in responding to me because that same day his wife's younger sister died unexpectedly in South Sudan. So it's grief upon grief, crisis upon crisis. How do you withstand these things and hold on to your confidence in the Lord? So it was that Jacob was left alone on the banks of the Jabbok Creek to face this crisis in his life. For even now, it turns out Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. I mean, what do you do with 400 men? It's a very big welcoming party. Or is it an army? No wonder Jacob was panicking. No wonder he didn't sleep that night. He had no idea what his brother Esau was planning to do. Jacob had sent messengers ahead of him in an attempt to make peace with Esau. But what kind of a welcoming party comes with 400 men? If you go back to chapter 32 for a moment, just have a look at these words from chapter 32, verse 7, earlier in the same chapter. It's earlier in the same day as well. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Okay, so he's splitting them in two. Maybe one will get away. Then Jacob prayed, notice this, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, he calls him by his personal name, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two groups. And in verse 11, he continues 
Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid, I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be counted. You see the present challenge, the future promise, and he's praying to the Lord, trying to work out this reality. Who is he going to trust? There's nothing like a crisis to inspire prayer, get us on our knees. I think we've all experienced that reality, haven't we? So here's a point of application. Isn't it true that God sometimes tests our faith just like he did with Abraham, just as he did here with Jacob. He does this so that we might learn to love him and rely on him more. That we might actually put into practice what we say we believe. When that crisis comes, I will trust in the Lord. I will stand with Christ my Saviour, come what may. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it when the banks foreclose... Or there's an argument in the marriage. Or the sorts of things that have happened as we've shared today. God allows these things, and it's a mystery, but that we might learn to love him and rely on him more. Think of how Job suffered, the man who suffered so greatly in the Old Testament, yet he was still able to say, wasn't he, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Though he pushed me to the limit, I will trust in him, for he is my God and I love him. And God allows this to happen. That he might lead us into a deeper relationship with himself. That we might know ourselves better too. It's an extraordinary truth that when, no matter what experience we find ourselves in, there is comfort in knowing that Christ has also been through that. So even, even when somebody loses a child, we can point to Jesus and say, well, God our Father knows what it is to lose his son too. Our God understands that pain. He knows that suffering. He's been through the trial and he can comfort those who go through these trials Today, in the midst of a crisis, the experience of finding God faithful is a wonderful thing. So Jacob felt the fear of his brother's revenge in his bones and it kept him up all night in prayer as it should. But then he found God faithful, his prayer was answered, his faith increased. And that's the same for you and me as well. Answered prayer is a great comfort. So the next time you're in a crisis, let me tell you, first of all, pray. Put your trust in the Lord who is sovereign over all. Ask him for help. Beg him to supply your need. Plead his promises as Jacob does. And by God's grace, trust that he'll rescue you in the way that he knows best. Trust him to do that. Then also it's wise to prepare for the crisis in whatever way you can before it hits. Jacob does that too, you'll notice. Perhaps God's answer to your crisis will come in the form of grace to choose one of two better paths. And then the grace of God will lead to the gratitude of deliverance and thanks and praise to the Lord. 
as you grow in your own faith in him. In the midst of his crisis, Jacob was neither paralysed by fear nor made complacent by false assurance. You can be paralysed and just freeze to the spot. Jacob doesn't do that. You can also be complacent and just as if, oh, God will just make it all work out. Jacob doesn't fall into either of those traps. But after praying to the Lord, he acts decisively to send gifts to his brother Esau in an attempt to appease his brother's wrath. Then he divides his family into two groups so that even if the worst should happen, at least there's some chance that one of the two groups will survive. You see, these are practical responses to a very serious crisis. Not only that, but if you look at that passage, you'll notice that Jacob begins to refer to his brother Esau as my master and my lord, something he would not have done before, I suspect. Because his heart is changing within him and and we see it in the way that he speaks and in the way that he relates to Esau. He is now giving proper respect to Esau, his brother, as the elder brother, by calling him my master. More than that, Jacob no longer sees himself as the master of his own destiny. Perhaps I think he once did, but now he sees himself as an unworthy servant whose life depends on God's mercy and grace. It's been a hard lesson for him, but he's finally got there. He says in that prayer, which I read to you earlier, chapter 32, verse 10, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. I am unworthy. I don't deserve it. And yet you have loved me still. That's a big change. God is remaking Jacob, the man, in and through the crisis that he is living out. God is refining him, purifying him deep within and preparing him to be the father of the nation of Israel. His whole family is now depending on him to lead them safely home. He has this responsibility as a husband and a father. But how can he do this when he knows in himself he doesn't have the power to save anyone from this crisis if Esau should really be determined to attack? Well, sometimes we say, I'll cross that river when I get there. But, well, Jacob is at that river now. And he has to cross it now. So with his self-reliant pride crumbling under the hammer of God's love, during the night, an angel of the Lord comes to him in the form of a man. And this wrestling match takes place in verse 24. Let's come to that now. Verse 24, my second point today, the wrestling match. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In the darkness of Jacob's lonely night, this man comes and wrestles with him through the night and all the way to daybreak. It is a mysterious scene. And there are unanswered questions. Who is this man? Where does he come from? Why is he wrestling with Jacob? What does it mean? Even as readers, we're not given immediate answers We are led, as it were, into Jacob's experience to to share with him the the, the panic, the the, the duel, the the wrestling. I think we're meant to feel with him some of that fear and confusion and desperation and and I will not let you go. That 
that's part of what we're called to understand and, and empathize with. So remember, Jacob has spent his whole life running away from his troubles, but now the time has come to fight. There's no escape. Whoever this man is, Jacob must deal with him first. And I wonder, could it be that even now Jacob had been thinking of running away again and leaving his family to face Esau alone? It is a possibility because he sent his wives and their children and all his possessions across the river and he's stayed on the other side. So he's by himself there over there. He still has to cross the river or he could go the other way. In the end, we see the outcome of this extraordinary wrestling match. For Jacob is now fighting for his life. At first it seems his opponent's just another man, but as the fight progresses, Jacob begins to wonder, and we already know the answer, but at one point he he does actually start to get the upper hand. Then the man just touches his hip, bim, The hip is dislocated and yet still the fight goes on. I wanted to show you a picture of a sumo wrestler that there's just too much flesh involved in the picture, but there's this big, bulky giant of a sumo wrestler and there's a little kid and he's kind of pushing up against the flab of this giant sumo wrestler. You can imagine it in your minds, uh, what's going on. I think that that's the kind of wrestling match here as well. There's, there's Jacob is being allowed to wrestle with this man um, who is more than a man. And Jacob must have realised by now that his opponent was supernatural. And so he grabs onto this man for dear life and just refuses to let go, not even when daybreak comes. I will not let you go, he says, unless you bless me. Uh, This is a cry of both desperation and faith all at once because Jacob knows that he cannot face tomorrow unless he knows that God is with him today. Lord, I believe, nevertheless, help me in my unbelief. I will not let you go unless you bless me first. So the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered, grasper, deceiver, supplanter. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Wow. It's a wonderful promise. And it's interesting, but the name Israel can take one of two meanings. It can mean he wrestles with God. That's as described in our passage today, and that's true. He wrestles with God. But it can also mean, as it were, he rules with God. And in this case, both are true. Having wrestled with God, Jacob will now rule with God. This beautiful name, Israel. So Jacob's new name becomes his new identity, From now on, he'll gain the reputation of a man who relies on God's strength, not his own, to bring his family safely home. He clings to God by faith. He wrestles with the Lord in order that he might rule with the Lord. He will be the head of his family, the head of the church, the forerunner of Christ.
In the midst of his struggles then, he meets a friend who will not let him go, a God who fights with him and for him in order to give him the victory. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Don't you know who I am? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel. The penny had dropped. The face of God. It's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. And wasn't it wonderful that our responsive reader today also had this uh, occasion where the 70 elders went up on the mountain of the Lord and saw God and ate and drank with him face to face. And what a promise of the hope that we have as Christians, that we shall see our God face to face and delight in his presence. So Jacob called the place Peniel, for he said, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So what does this all mean for us today? Jacob saw God face to face. He struggled with the Lord and with men and prevailed. And in future generations, Jacob's experience in our passage today came to be remembered as a kind of blueprint of how God deals with his people throughout history. Today, the Lord continues to fight against us, I want to suggest, for our own good. We don't often think of it this way. He fights against our sinfulness. He fights against our pride. He purifies us in our faith in that fiery furnace of his love. He allows us to be put to the test. He hammers us with his holy word. He smashes our stubbornness and pride to break us down that he might make us, remake us in the image of Christ. He crushes our sinful nature and he challenges us to follow him. And yet through it all, he remains your truest friend, as every Christian will testify. He does this because he loves you. Today, then, we cling to him by faith, just like Jacob did. We hold on. We may not see him face to face today, but by faith we do, and one day we will see him as Jacob did. Jacob is a forerunner of Christ, and we can hold on to that hope today. For Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he still deals with us personally, breaking down our defences, calling us to repentance so that we can receive all the rich blessings that he's prepared for us. And meanwhile, we all walk with a limp in this world. I come to my final point today, Jacob's Creek. You know, ow, ow, I did put my hip out there a couple of weeks ago. Gee, it's inconvenient. You ever notice you've got that sore hip, you just hobble around. Uh, you're looking for something to hold on to. We all have our failings. We all walk with a limp. There's a little bit of Jacob in every one of us, for he is our forefather in the faith. And like him, we are pilgrims on a journey looking forward to our spiritual home in heaven. And now in verse 31, the sun is rising on Jacob's new life. And even though he's walking with a limp, it doesn't matter because there's still a spring in his step, I reckon. Faith mixed with repentance is the fuel that feeds a transformed life. 
And the power of that new life is immediately apparent as soon as we cross over into Genesis chapter 33. Now, as you go from the chapter today to what reads on, we see Jacob looks up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Okay, here it is. The battle is about to happen. What's going to happen? But Jacob doesn't panic. I'm sure he would have before, but he doesn't now. He still divides his children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants. He puts the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. But if you go to chapter 34, sorry, 33, you'll see in verse 3 something amazing that Jacob then strides to the front of his family to meet Esau face to face. Jacob goes to the front. He bows down seven times in front of Esau to pay him respect. And then finally in verse 10, he even tries to atone for the sins of his past. He says to Esau, if I have found favor in your eyes, please accept this gift. Please accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Courage has replaced cowardice. Humility has replaced arrogance. Repentance has replaced hard-heartedness. Jacob's no longer running. He's now a new man, and his name is Israel. And as the sun rose above him, he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. For God had blessed Jacob with a holy injury. He touched him on his hip to keep him humble and perhaps in a spiritual sense to keep him from running. And it's just the injury that this man needed. It was a physical reminder for him to rely on God's grace continually and not on his own self-sufficiency. Talk to Tom. Sure, you could share the same challenges. A man who walks with a limp and yet an encouragement. Remember, God did the same thing also for the Apostle Paul. How many of you are thinking of Paul at this time as well? God gave him a holy injury, a thorn in the flesh. Paul himself explains, to keep me from becoming conceited, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, there's a great promise. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So yes, sometimes God will afflict you with a holy injury for your good. That's why the Israelites remembered Jacob's hip. It was a lesson to them in grace. And it became a reminder for them to always walk humbly before the Lord their God. So in verse 32, the final verse in our passage today, Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So learn this lesson today, that God also works in our lives in this way, to reshape us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We all walk with a limp. And sometimes it can be frustrating, sometimes it can be hard,
But this too is part of God's good plan for us that we might learn patience, endurance, humility and prayer. So I ask you, is it time that you stopped running from your problems? Is it time that you surrendered entirely to God's will? Could it be that like Jacob, your greatest need is not self-reliance or strength, but simply God's blessing and God's grace? At Jabbok Creek, Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed and received the blessing and saw him face to face. God gave him a new name, a new life, a new future, and also this holy injury to keep him humble. For God said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. So let's wrap things up for today. We've been on this journey with Jacob today. What have we learned? First of all, I've got four points. First of all, you can't steal from God, okay? When Jacob was young, he was a grasper and a deceiver. He was unworthy of the promises that God had made to him. He eventually realized that. So he bought Esau's birthright for a bowl of stew and he lied to his father in a bid to steal Esau's blessing. But it came to nothing because he was running away. It was only when he had to wrestle these things out with the Lord that God allowed him to prevail, that the confirmation was finally received. So that this time when he asked for the blessing, God gave it to him freely. What we so long to take for ourselves, God is willing to give us freely if we just trust in him. You can't steal from God, so don't try. Secondly, be careful of running away from your problems. It seems like the safest thing to do sometimes. That fight or flight uh, instinct within us can make us run. But remember that no matter where you run to, God is already there. Jonah learnt that in the belly of the fish, didn't he? God is there in the depths of the ocean, on the highest hill. He's already there. You can't run away from God. All you need to do is turn to him, face up to reality. So when the crisis comes, first of all, pray for God's help and prepare in whatever way you can for what you're going to need to face. But then trust in the Lord knowing that he will carry you through, that he will deliver you because he's made that promise in Jesus Christ. And that promise is sure and certain. The Lord knows what is best and he will see you through. And thirdly then, remember we all walk with a limp. The process of being humbled is an ongoing one and sometimes it hurts, but get used to it. It's part of living in a fallen world. Just be honest with God. Recognize your unworthiness. Confess your sins to God. Trust in the Lord to save you. What else can you do? And remember what Jesus said to Paul, those wonderful words. My grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe that this morning? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And finally, keep in step with the Spirit. Hobble along, keep walking with the Lord. Walk with him, talk with him, share along life's way, for God has promised great things to those who trust him and who overcome through faith, who, like Jacob, persevere and endure the hardships for God's name 
and do not grow weary. And if you want to cross that river now, if that's where you're at today, it's very simple really, at least the theory of it is. Just need to repent, confess your sins, turn to God, cling to Jesus and he'll carry you across. He's your Lord. Hold on tight. Claim his promises and he'll cross the river for you as you hold on to him. For God's strength is made perfect in weakness and truly he is all our strength and stay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent to us a saviour who knows our deepest needs and our deepest fears. We see in ourselves the unworthiness that Jacob also saw and we confess again how unworthy we are. And yet we also see that you have come to us in the person of your son, Jesus. You wrestle with us. You, you fight against our faithlessness. You claim us for yourself. And, and so you, you enable us to live again. Lord, help us to stop running away, to accept the holy injuries that you give us, and help us to keep in step with you as we walk along life's way. For Lord, this is our delight, this is our joy, and even though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.